Hello and welcome to EndNotes. In this series, we take you behind the cover and through the pages of books on politics, policy, and more, all written by researchers at the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. I'm Rose Huber, and joining me today is Sebastian Philippe, who's co-authored a book with French investigative journalist Thomas Statues called Toxic. Using hundreds of declassified French government documents, on-the-ground interviews in France and in Polynesia, and countless hours of advanced computer simulations, the book reveals the aftermath of French nuclear weapon testing in the South Pacific, both on the people and the environment. Many of the documents, interviews, and simulations are on a dedicated new website in French and English that is being released with the book. Sebastian is an associate research scholar at our program on science and global security. He's also a lecturer in the School of Public and International Affairs. Welcome to the show, Sebastian. It's great to be here, Rose. So I think many of our listeners may not be terribly familiar with French nuclear weapon testing in the South Pacific, which, as your book reveals, had major human and environmental consequences. Could you maybe take us back in history and sort of explain what was going on? So we have to go back to the beginning of the Cold War and uh, France, who was in between, if you want, the the Eastern and, and and Western bloc decided to develop nuclear weapons. And after starting its program, it tested its first weapons in Algeria, in Northern Africa. After the Algerian independence, essentially uh, had to stop testing over there and eventually looked for another place to uh, continue uh, its nuclear experiments. So what is interesting is this was happening at a time where there was a lot of international pressure to stop atmospheric testing, that means exploding nuclear weapons in the air, if you want. Mm -hmm. And so the last tests in Algeria were underground, but when the the new center for nuclear testing opened in the Pacific, the tests were atmospheric again. So the explosion were happening happening in the air and, and opening the possibility to contaminate nearby and areas. So your book is based on several thousand pages of declassified French government documents, as well as hundreds of hours of computer simulations and interviews. This just sounds like a lot of work. (laughs) I'm curious, what motivated you to dig deeper into this? What was sort of the initial trigger point? So in the past uh, few years, I've been more and more involved in interdisciplinary projects, working with historians or scholars in international relations. And here, the project came as an opportunity when a group of scholars who specialize in the investigation of environmental crimes, uh, but also a collective of investigative journalists, their name are Interpret and, and Disclose, they essentially uh, had access to, those, to this uh, archive, those documents that were declassified as part of... Um, long struggle of victims that were asking to know what had happened. And so they were looking for a partner who had a technical background to to peer into those documents. You know, I was fascinated to see what was in those documents because it's extremely rare to have access to that information. So as you were looking through these documents, what started to come out to you as being kind of particularly alarming or troubling? You have to go back to the history again and the and the official kind of discourse of the government that uh, pretty much the tests were absolutely clean and the population was always protected. 
and uh, never really impacted by what had happened. But here in the documents, you could see that essentially elevated radioactivity in air was measured for pretty much every single test that was conducted, so over 40 of them. And in particular, some of those tests uh, really had a significant impact uh, on local populations. So to give you an idea, so the, the Polynesia is, is you know, in, the, in, in the Pacific Ocean and a large number of, of islands and atolls. And while the test site was presented as remote, it was actually relatively close to population that were living you know, in the nearby atolls. And so one of the documents, for example, from 71, as I was reading it, was explaining that uh, after the test, the radioactive cloud went over that island, it started raining, and the local inhabitants actually used rainwater as their primary source of drinking water. And so their family cistern, where they collect rain, were contaminated with fish and products, in the document, it was worried, you know, that uh, children would be significantly affected. So they listed the number of children we were living by and in which cistern they were drinking water and the level of contamination. And so all, all of, I see all of this information in front of me and I realized that, well, those people essentially has, have never been told. And what was amazing also is that contamination was measured. I mean, the inhabitants essentially, the inhabitants were not told that the water was contaminated. The, the water tanks were not even cleaned up. I mean, we have no proof that, you know, essentially this, this was uh, handled properly. So the secrecy that was associated with the test always placed a huge burden on the local population. And it was always important to show that nothing was happening to them. But in retrospect, we look at those documents and we see that, yes, they were significantly impacted by those tests. That's really scary. Um, the the cloud you're talking about was that the one I was reading in the book that it exposed something like over a hundred thousand people. Is that the same event or is that a separate event? It's a separate event. Yeah. Wow. Um, so there are multiple events <laughs> that wow. uh, we go also for the book. And and those events, by the way, today they they have been kind of recognized as as moment where things didn't go by the government as where things didn't go as they were planned. Uh, this is kind of their, their language. What is interesting here was to look at exactly what was known then and then compare that information to what is believed to have happened today, especially in connection to how uh, victims can seek compensation. That test that you mentioned, the 1974 test, was an, a very interesting one because it happened at the very end of atmospheric nuclear testing in Polynesia. And that was the last year, the last campaign, if you wish. There was a lot of tests that the historical documents we have say, you know, they were uh, under, they had a tight timetable. They were uh, under a lot of stress. The, the security and, you know, checking and safety was under a lot of stress and so on. Uh, and for that particular event, when the, the nuclear weapon was detonated, it creates a fireball. That fireball rises, if you will, and creates a cloud of radioactive particle. But that cloud did not reach the expected altitude, and the winds uh, may have shifted. And so instead of where they thought the fallout would go, it started traveling west. In about two days, the, the cloud essentially impacted the 
the island where most people in Polynesia live. And so one, one big question of interest we had was, given what it takes today to be recognized as a victim, but one of the requirements is to show that you were exposed past a certain level. And, and our reconstruction of this event show that, yes, more, way more people were affected significantly than when we fought. And I, we based this on the reconstruction of the trajectory of the cloud that we that was able to compute uh, over several days, uh, but also on the analysis of the government studies on the impact on the populations. And that second point was was also extremely interesting uh, work to do. Uh, it was essentially the, the the government did publish estimates of how population were impacted before a law was created to compensate populations. But the raw data on which those evaluations were based had never been published, and we found them in part in the documents that were declassified. And so we were wow. able to cross-check them and sometimes realize that higher data or had not been used or that or that mistake that had been made. And when we correct from them, uh, we were able to come to this result where we say that today, if someone is also a victim of a certain cancer, according to French law, and the level of exposure they received during the atmospheric test, if they were present at the time, then they should be allowed to uh, be compensated. Oh, I was going to ask more about the victims. What 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 impact has it had on them? Health impacts and otherwise. Right. So you know when you when you're exposed to to radioactivity, that exposure and contamination essentially increases your risk of developing certain cancers. Now, one one thing is that the exposure, while it was widespread, did not happen at extremely high levels. So, you know, we're talking about levels of the order of what happened in Fukushima, for example, which is very, I mean, it was still very high for the population, but it's it's considered technically uh, low exposures. Even with those low exposures, people are still essentially affected by those events and it's possible for them to increase their, their, their risk of, of uh, getting cancer. Uh, we can not always measure that epidemiologically, and, and that's a big problem in Polynesia. There are issues with the cancer registries, with the actually understanding and the calculation of how people were exposed. And so that, that creates almost impossibilities to kind of come to the answer of measuring that impact. Nevertheless, what was decided in France uh, over 10 years ago was that there was a presumption of causality between their exposure and their cancer. So I'm kind of curious because you sort of said that part of it might have been uh, in the safety measures, but then the other part is just natural in terms of the wind. And I guess I don't want to point the finger at who's to blame, but I am kind of curious, like who you think is what you think is to blame for it, for this. Well, so, you know, as I say, Rose, the, this is the, the development of French nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. It begins in Algeria first in the atmosphere, then then goes underground, and then is brought back in the atmosphere. When you're testing nuclear weapons in the air, you are releasing radioactive particles, okay. and then depending on the type of test, this is happening no matter what. So, you know, this is, <laughs> I guess, this is the the 
you know, where it all starts. I mean, there's, there's no way to make them clean. So you always have the, you know, the possibility of impacted people. Then the question is like, how much do you impact them? Uh, and is it acceptable? And that, that's, that's more of a, you know, policy and ethical question. Got it. Yeah, that's helpful. I think for many of our general listeners, you just hear the word nuclear and get, you know, really terrified. So, um, but I understand this. This is just sort of how some of the testing is done. I'm curious if there are other nuclear events that have happened like this in the United States or even elsewhere. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so, you know, the, the U.S. started uh, tested for the first time in 1945 uh, in New Mexico. That was the Trinity uh, mm. nuclear explosion then uh, tested in Nevada, and also tested in the Marshall Islands, uh, also in the Pacific. And all those events led to radioactive fallout, you know, falling on, on local uh, communities. And in the U.S., you, you had, also, you know, amazing studies done kind of at the, at the county level, you know, with like extreme granularity of uh, which counties and, and so on were had been uh, exposed and to what level. And this has been taken into account for a long time into compens- compensating essentially the what we call the downwinders, which were the people living downwinds from, from mm. the radioactive fallouts. You know, you mentioned policy earlier when I was asking about the who's to blame question. And we do like to ask that question in this show. So can we pivot in that direction and talk about what policy implications or recommendations the book provides? So, 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 you know, I, I mentioned that the book is part of the, of this larger project and that, that project from, from my perspective as, as a scholar, as a technical and policy scholar is intended as an intervention uh, to inform both the policy process and the debate on the compensation of victims from those tests. What what the book also discuss is you have all those events happening and these happened many years ago, but since 10 years, you do have a law that is there to provide a way for uh, victims to be compensated. However, for the first seven years of the law, 97% of all claimants are rejected, for example. And so there's been a lot of... Uh, <laughs> difficulties parliaments to kind of really address the consequences of those tests the policy recommendation from 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 my point of view is to rethink the way uh, compensation and, and reparation are uh, structured today you know one one first step for example would be to compensate people who have particular type of cancer that are already recognized by the state but put no threshold for compensation in terms of exposure during the entire time of atmospheric testing. That, that would be a fair policy to start from. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'm kind of curious, because you said you did some on-the-ground interviews. That's, is that right? Yeah, my, my, my co-author, uh, in part, uh, okay. because uh, a big part of this project happened you know, during the pandemic. And so uh, in the U.S., uh, we, were, we were pretty much grounded. I, yeah, I asked because it seems like the policy implications here is really centered on the people that it affected and them being compensated for this. And I'm wondering if in those interviews, what were the challenges that those people were facing health-wise? Like, I, were there any really compelling stories, I guess is what I'm asking, anything that you can still remember from those time, those interviews? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is, 
you know, uh, we we make them actually at the center of many chapters in the you know in the book uh, and and in the investigation at large. You have people that are, you know that we interviewed that have already been recognized as victims. The long struggle for recognition and the things they have to go through. I mean, those are all people that first are uh, cancer survivors or that are of cancer or that had family members who died of cancers, for example. And so it's a very, you know, it's a very difficult process to go through. Uh, Not only you have to deal with your illness, you have to then prepare and file, you know, a claim which needs to contain those documents. Sometimes those exposures happen when you were children, you know, mm-hmm. and you were living on a remote islands or a remote atoll, and uh, you need to provide, you know, proof of residence or things like this. And it's for those people, it's not always easy just to go through those first steps. So when then you put them in, you put their claim in front of a committee who, you know, say that it is acting very scientifically and provide a response saying you can have it or you cannot be recognized as a victim because you were not exposed beyond this threshold. And as a victim, you have no way to, you know, see the data, you know, do the calculations yourself or all of these things. So um, yeah. it's, it's nerve-wracking, essentially. It's, it's a nerve-wracking process. Well, it's interesting you say that the chapters sort of center on these stories. I'm curious from the writing perspective, you know, how long did it take you to to write the book and what was the hardest chapter or section for you to draft? You know, the, the entire project took over two years to complete. Also, we were two writing it. One, one thing that was absolutely fascinating and interesting to me was this opportunity to work with an investigative journalist uh, as a scientist. You know, I'm, I'm a scientist by training and to kind of bring bring our two standards of uh, proof and evidence and the story we're telling and combining them together in something that would be extremely compelling for the reader that would be you know excellent journalism but also top science coming together and that that was that was difficult sometimes but it was it was extremely extremely rewarding i can imagine i'm sort of curious you know we try to we bring a lot of academics onto this show, obviously, and some of the books are more academic leaning, but we think that, you know, people could still pick those books up and read them. So I'm curious if you have a target audience in mind for this book. It sounds a little academic, but it also sounds personal in some ways. So who do you think should add it to your to their reading list? So the, the, the book, the, the, the original version is published in French, and um, the website for the overall investigation is is also published in English right now, but uh, we look forward to have the book translated. Um, and right now, the, the the target audience is really uh, wide. Uh, you know, we're talking about victims, uh, citizens, uh, policymakers, anyone you know, members of the public. So we 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 do address. Uh, essentially, we write for them. Yeah, but also from the academic perspective, I think we provide a fundamentally new approach in dealing with this uh, subject of of this intersection of you know journalism, nuclear science, environmental justice, if you want. 
so I hope you know the the, the book is read in, in, in different circles. Well, we're just about out of time, Sebastian, but is there anything else you'd want to add about the project before we wrap up today? Just want to add, you know, that that um, I think that project for me was possible to do it, participate in it because because of uh, what the work we do here at the School of Public International Affairs and in particular in, in the program on science global security here. We have a long tradition uh, of scientists working in the public interest. And so this type of academic project that is policy-oriented to support you know, people who can't always generate the kind of knowledge that uh, you need in, in law courts or in policy process when you're seeking justice from, for yourself or your communities, I, I, I just want to, to say that not being here essentially would not, you know, I would not have been able to do that. Yeah, the program on science and global security is a great place to be. A lot of great researchers and amazing work coming out of that center. Uh, Well, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks for having me, Rose. We want to thank our listeners for tuning in to EndNotes, currently available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. This show is edited and produced by me, Rose Huber. We also want to thank our visual designer, Egan Jimenez. Take care, everybody. You've been listening to EndNotes, a series produced by the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. The content you've just heard does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or Princeton SPIA.